Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, we are watching Where the Wild Things Are, as the film turns 10 years old. Yes, it's already 10 years old. One of our guests is so surprised by this. We're going to introduce her now. It's Sarah Curtis, everybody. Hi. How are you, Dr. Sarah? Oh, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, Sarah, you've not seen this film. I don't know how I've missed this film. Well, you've had 10 years to watch it. I mean, I was just saving it up for you, I guess. I suppose, yeah. Um, What do you know about where the wild things are? Uh, There are wild things and we're trying to find where they are. (laughs) 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 I know nothing about this film. I saw the ads and I went, oh, I should see that. Uh, and that was about 10 years ago. So, mm. And the ads clearly didn't work, which is a shame. <laughs> uh, and joining us as our guest who has seen the film, it's Murray Jackson, everybody. Hey, how are you, Stephen? I'm well, Murray. Uh, Murray, you have seen Where the Wild Things Are. I have, Stephen. In a sort of vague, non-spoilery sort of way, uh, what can Sarah and other people who've not seen this film expect? Well, um, Sarah, yes, you, you can see wild things. Do we find um, out where they are? Well, they will probably be on the screen, I imagine. Good, uh, if, good. You're, if, you're, if you watch, you will see them. Um, what, what, sorry, what, what can I tell people about this without giving things away, Stephen? Well, Pretty much. For goodness sakes, most people have probably read the book by Morris Sendak. Mm, a very the much, popular... The um, much-loved children's book. Yeah. Um, and it... It vaguely, but not quite. Well, it doesn't really, does it? Follow that. It's it starts to, and then sort of veers off, and yeah. I mean, I I, I saw the film before I read the book. I kind of went the wrong way around. I guess mm. all the not the intended way around. And I do find that that's a pretty common criticism of the film. But at the same time, I think some of the things that they don't do in the film, which are in the book, are understandable simply because of um, how much it would cost to do some of the things that they wanted to do or maybe some of the effects mm. weren't quite around. I'm thinking See, specifically... It's, it's of years some... since I read the book. I probably yeah. read the book when I was a kid mm. and, you know, Stephen, looking at me, I haven't been a child for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't look a day over 80. Oh, thank you very much, Siri. You can just piss off. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I I don't know. It's, 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 it's a hard one, Stephen, because the book from memory is pretty much dialogue-less. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it amused me when I heard they were making a film of where the wild things are. Thinking, wow, how are you going to spin out what was probably a thirty-page, pretty much wordless, um, not wordless in terms of these descriptions of the the action, but in terms of dialogue between characters? How are you going to stretch that out to a film of ninety odd minutes? Ask Peter Jackson; he's good at that. Well, they, mm. they they could have done, but they actually asked Spike Jones, uh, who's most well known for stuff like being John Malkovich and um, adaptation, and those are some wordy films. So you know he could supply some of that magic, maybe. Well, does he? Well, 
we will have to find out when we watch the film. Uh, one thing I've neglected to mention to all of you listening so far is we actually have a third guest on this program. Uh, a little bit later today, you will hear from one of the wild things themselves. Oh, I wondered if uh, you were going to bring that in. Yes, uh, I was able to conduct an interview with Sam Longley, who was the physical half of one of the wild things, and uh, we'll be hearing from him and his thoughts on the film 10 years on a little bit later in the program. So you're saying that even if the film doesn't answer my question, that we in fact do know where they are because we know where Sam Longley is? Uh, yes, um, I know I know exactly where one of the wild things lives and gets his post. So. <laughs> um, but uh, that that's all coming up later. For now, uh, we'd like you to pop in your DVDs and put on your animalistic onesies as we prepare to visit where the wild things are. Welcome back, everybody. We've just finished watching Where the Wild Things Are. And by we, I, of course, mean Murray Jackson. Oh! And Dr. Sarah Curtis. Look, so we don't actually know where the wild things are. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> uh, we, look, we know that they're somewhere. We know that they're together. They're That's, in liminal space. We, we know that they are together. That's what it is. Uh, Sarah, it was your first time watching Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. What did you think? No. You didn't like I it? I did not like it. So what, what didn't you like about it then? Uh, well, okay. It's easier to tell you what I did like. Okay. Um, I liked the music. Mm-hmm. I liked the acting of the child, but not actually the character. Yeah. So you liked the performance, but not yes. who they were playing. That's all I liked. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Okay. How about the creature animation? It was okay. Oh. Well, how about the, um, the creatures themselves? Uh. Specifically the physical actors, because one of them is a guest on this program. Sam was great. He, I mean, he is great. But um, so so this film just didn't click for you. It's not. Um, look, the problem I had was I get I got it. Look, I, I got the message it was trying to make, you know, about family and not going off and being abusive and not, you know, having temper tantrums and breaking everything. Mm. But I didn't like the fact that everyone had temper tantrums and went around breaking everything. Mm, to demonstrate that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Murray, when did you last watch this film? Um, probably when it came out, I think. Okay, yeah. so it's probably been a good decade between uh, oh, yeah. sips. Uh, well, how was it revisiting uh, wherever the wild things are? Uh, look, I think much the same as the first time, Stephen, to be honest with you. yeah. It's, um, For those of us who weren't there. It's not an easy film, is it? I mean, it's, mm. there's not a lot of light in this film. Both, um, both in the metaphorical sense and the actual sense. Well, I think more in terms of the, the thematic side mm. of things. Yeah. So it's not Game of Thrones season eight, episode three. Uh, look, I'm not saying you have to go and see a film and it has to be bouncy and light and and happy endings and God knows I rail against Hollywood endings, but um, that yeah, the the overall tone of the film is quite downbeat, quite depressing. Um, and it never sort of lets up, which mm. you could say, well, hey, kudos to the director, it never lets up. And at the same time, it's, it's after a while, you just start sitting there going, oh, God, you start, oh, my life, I, you start thinking about um, 
you know, all the the the, the, the terrible downsides of life, and <laughs> and it's it does become an exercise in depression. It kind of makes you think about your own depressing childhood and go, wasn't that bad? So I'm winning. Mm. It's interesting because this I watched this for the first time last week uh, in preparation for the interview with Sam Longley that's coming up because I hadn't seen it before, and I didn't find it that depressing or at least i didn't find it as depressing i think it is definitely tonally um a film which is very much um focusing on the fact that stuff isn't easy uh, and and that obviously max is definitely working through his 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 stuff basically he's got these these issues and the the wild things are all reflections of these different aspects of his personality um but the first time watching it, I didn't come out of it going, "Oh God, my own life." I, 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 I actually thought it was it was quite nice. But the second time watching it, I don't know if it's just because I've watched it twice in a week, but I did feel it was a it, it did drag the second time for me a little bit, and um, I, I guess it's because I knew that there wasn't going to be any of that levity that you were speaking about. The you know, the, arguably the the moment of levity is the dirt clod fight. Hmm. And that very quickly, that's yeah. Not well, that's exactly just it. Yeah, you know, it's like they're throwing these dirt clods and having fun. A bit like the snowball fight, though. You know what's going to happen? Like the snowball fight at the start of the film, it's someone's going to get hurt. Like they're going to get their feelings hurt, and they're not going to be able to cope with it. And all that stuff that's under the surface is going to come right back to the fore again, as it, as it did in the argument between um, KW and uh, Carol. Who knew mm. that violence wasn't the way? Yeah. So I suppose yeah, it's. I don't know how you're supposed to take. It. Is it a metaphor for adolescence, or I'm not? I'm not quite sure. I mean, I, I I think partly because obviously the original book, as you said, is is not um, dialogue heavy. It, mm. it, it is very much a a book in which you sort of observe what's happening and, and reflect. I feel they've done well to capture that in in the sense of this film, but I, I suppose maybe it's just a case of the style of the delivery i guess mm. i mean the the one thing that i really did enjoy about this both times watching it is just how realistic the personalities of all the wild things felt even though they're essentially playing up to one specific character type i know people who are like all of these wild things and they are people who sometimes annoy me <laughs> and you know there's these aspects of these characters like when carol continues to essentially be the same as max when before max runs off you know and continues to be i need to be the center of attention and why is no one listening to me and then responding to that through basically being a piece of shit and just beating up st- you know beating up the nests and and roaring like a dog and things like that i i, I found those those portrayals very effective but it doesn't let up. And I think that is part of the issue with this film. I think that's the thing, because if you have watched any of other, you know, Spike Jones's other films, like um, Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, none of them are, are, are light films. None of, I mean, Being John Malkovich, as an example, is not a laugh-a-minute film. The, the characters are fairly downbeat, quite depressing, not people that you would... Um, you know, you know, gravitate towards in terms of their their behaviour or, or or you know their activities. But there was something at least about that film where there were those moments of light in what they did that kept you engaged. Because I believe cinema should be a fun 
thing. You should be able mm. to go to the cinema and enjoy what you're seeing mm. um, in some way, even if it's, you know, as we were talking about before we started this, you know, my penchant for um, gory films. Um, you still get something out of it. Yeah, I mean, dismemberment mainly. But um, there's, you know, I don't know. There's not a lot to hang on to with this film. There's, you go from one moment of angst to another moment of angst. Mm. I think, and that's quite draining. It is over, very draining. But I, I can ninety minutes. I, I can see why some people might look at this film and really make a connection with it. Because I imagine there's lots of people who've gone through being essentially problematic, difficult children like Max's in terms of children who are a bit out of control and feel alone and misunderstood and those sorts of things. And I could see them potentially having, you know, grown up a bit looking back on this film and seeing, you know, the kid running around and like standing on the kitchen counter and saying, woman, feed me. And, you know, just being deliberately irritating and difficult and looking back on it and going oh god i remember being like that and making those connections with this film mm. but, well, I mean, but, yeah. but, but in, in terms of like for everyone else <clears throat> it's it's less enjoyable in that sense if you can't make that relation i mean you know growing up um i used to like the smiths listening to the smiths you mm. know dark maudlin music but mm. there was a dark humor under that that you could always grab onto, and that was your, your, um, I don't know if one of a better word, life preserver. Mm. There's nothing in this film to grab onto. You can, I don't know, maybe the central message you can grab onto and, and go with that. Um, but man, it's, it's 90 minutes of unrelenting rain from a dark cloud. Mm. Mm. Um, I think let's talk about one of the things that we did find positively though like in terms of the music and I, w- I would add on to that the visual aspects of this film and I think that might be something that people would cling on to because this is a very visually striking film when it's lit uh, when it's not these mysterious nighttime scenes and I get the idea that it's meant to be dark and you're not meant to know what's going on but when like when they're building the big fort and you just see this this big nest being built out of twigs I, I found that particularly the first time watching it, very striking. Um, oh, yeah, it's very visually, it's, it's, I think it's quite a brilliant film. Yeah. yeah, and I also found the the facial animations of the of the wild things themselves. And Sarah, this is a mixture of animation and puppetry, two of your least favourite things. Which I think is why I didn't like it. And I, th- I can mm. accept that it's really well done. Mm. And on that level, I do in fact like it because mm. I can go, oh, wow, they did such a good job, but I don't like animation and I don't like puppets. So my inner child is going, oh, please get away from me. Mm. But I felt that that did work quite effectively. And you also mentioned that you quite liked the the soundtrack. Yes, it was beautiful. Mm. And it, that, that felt like the emotional resonance to me. And of course, a lot of the time, the soundtrack is the emotional core of a film. But for me, that was the only thing that I was grabbing onto. It shouldn't be something... Sound shouldn't be noticeable. It's mm. something that should just be there happening. And if it's doing a really good job, you don't notice it. But because everything else was just not working for me i was latching onto that and going well done sound you yeah. good thing you so you mm. particularly didn't like the character of max mm-hmm. um please explain i think the problem i had apart from his innate violence and his nature was the fact that those are learned traits 
So when a kid is acting out like that, usually there's something going on at home. I'm not sure if it's because his dad died or because he was abusive and walked out on them. Either way, you know, he learned these traits from the world around him and also from his mum. Like they had a shouting match at the beginning instead of her sitting down and talking him through his emotions and asking him to explain the things he liked and didn't like and what was going on. She yelled at him. Um, so, you know, they both need to go to therapy and I'm not saying she's a terrible mum. You know, she was a good mum, but she fed into those negative traits and he amplified those and obviously went too far and she didn't know how to cope. Mm. I get that. Being a single parent is terrible. I was raised by a single parent. It's pretty hard. Um, so I'm just watching this, this behavioral issue that's going on going, there are so many better ways to deal with this. It probably doesn't help that one of his potential future role models, uh, the the potential stepfather that we see at the start of the film, mm. is the Hulk. Is the Hulk. Um, yeah. A very, very um, small cameo mm. from Mark Ruffalo. Uh, that, he was great. He was great, yeah. As just this, like, yeah. I, I bought him as this, like, kind of cheeky boyfriend kind of character. Mm. Um, but you're right. I, I do think that it's one of the... I think it is one of the uh, strengths and weaknesses of this film. Like, the fact that you see those relationships... The relationship between Max and his mother isn't necessarily 100% healthy in terms of their behaviours. Like, they clearly do quite like each other. They Mm. clearly love each other. But they don't know how to react properly with one another, particularly in those high-tension situations. And we we see it's all set up that whatever is going on with her job, Mr. Lassiter, is obviously very difficult and is obviously, you know, she's, she's in almost the last chance alone. But you don't get the sense through the watching of this film that any improvement has been made, mm. even though Max has seen, has had and had the opportunity to see how his behaviours through the wild things are not healthy. You also don't get the sense that, oh, yes, I am a changed person and I'm going to kick on because, and it was only the second time watching this, I noticed when he gets back, he's still barking at the dog yes, when he comes I'd back. Yes, I noticed that. And it, that my immediate thought, as they were howling as he, you know, sailed away, because he could mm. magically sail boats, mm. liminal space, whatever. Um, you know, and he's running back and he's still acting like a wild thing. And, you know, on one hand, that's great. He's still able to be a kid and kids express themselves creatively. Fantastic. But that was the symbol of his wildness and his horridness and mm. the fact that nothing changes they don't really say anything when he gets home. So, you know, she's still probably about to be fired from her job. Um, he probably still has a problem with new boyfriend dude. He hasn't made up with his sister. He went in on a, a rampage in his sister's room within mm. the first five minutes and broke shit. Like, that's not on. Mm. And instead of taking him aside and going, hey, that wasn't an appropriate expression of your anger, she kind of just left him to it. Like, there were no repercussions. So he didn't learn boundaries, which is why he kept getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And those boundaries are still not in place by the end. And, and that might also explain why we feel so emotionally sort of tired at the end of this, because he then goes to an island with the monsters are. Uh, we, we haven't worked out where that island is yet either, Sarah. Um, and there's an emotionally manipulative, abusive Carol... Um, you know, being emotionally manipulative and abusive mm-hmm. to his girlfriend KW. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that the whole thing goes from one uh, setup of um, you know, um, angst to another setup of angst. Uh, as I say, it never lets up, does it? No, and I think the wild things themselves are quite. <laughs> interesting characters but but none of them 
have that capacity to um, sort of escape who they are because they are innately aspects of 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 Max of his as the child. Yeah. yeah, and you know that. I mean, because you you really get the sense that this is this whole adventure where he goes on the boat and does like the the you know life of pie sailing thing where he goes off to the island and, and you does don't have that. to eat and you don't have to drink because it's magic liminal space. Yeah, it's it's very much just him sort of working through these things and kind of almost playing with like figurines of these things and working it out. And yeah, I, I did find, particularly the second time round, I, I thought the character of Carol um, not growing is, is, is an issue, but also the wild things can't really grow because mm. the only character that can grow mm. is Max. I just don't think we saw that reflected that well. Well, also, I think because they gave him a, a position of responsibility. Mm. And of course, again, he is the only real person there. The others mm. are figments of his different you know, aspects. But him taking on the responsibility of the king mm. made him have to take on the responsibility of an adult, which could be part of the issue where suddenly he's being raised by a single mum and he feels like he has to step up and be an adult and mm. doesn't know how because he's a kid and no one's taking him aside and going hey just be a kid and not a feral little monster but you know just go and be mm. a kid and play and have fun without having to take on these responsibilities i, I mean the the whole being the king thing is very you know classic children playing you know self-insert want to be important sort of fantasy trope mm. but I, same- I thought it was basically that he has no one to answer to that yeah. mm. he can be as wild as he wants because mm. he is the king of that domain but the other thing i thought th- that that could represent is that that push into adolescence because he learns that oh great i can do all these things which is something that happens when obviously when you transition from being a child to an adult as you get older and you get more responsibilities you also get to be like oh what i can learn to drive and drive a car that's great but then there's all the responsibilities on top of that which you don't realize come with it and i think that's partly what the king role was so that when he starts um after the while they're building the nest and he starts arguing back with Judith and Judith saying, hey, you're the king. You're not meant to make me feel bad. You have to make us feel good or I can eat you, like that kind of thing. I felt that like that was almost representative of that um, transition into adolescence, which Max would probably be starting to do at this age. Mm, he looked a bit younger than that. Well, he looked he looked like he was about nine or ten. A bit younger. Yeah. But... I mean, at the very beginning of the film, he looked like he might be eight at the very most. By yeah. the end, he looked a bit older. Magic of cinema. Yeah. But but in terms of like he's he's at that stage where that mm-hmm. is about to begin. And also the fact is Claire, his sister, is isolating him and she's hanging out with kids that are a couple of years older. It's, you know, maybe not surprising that he would want you know when you're a kid and you want to be older, it's usually because you want all the positives that come with that. And maybe not necessarily without realising that there are negatives to being I guess, 14 instead of 10, for example. Um, yeah, I, I just thought the use of the king thing was was quite interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, as I say, I I, I think it... Um, there's this huge disconnect, I think, between that movie and and the book. Mm. And that that is probably one of the other things that I think a lot of people find hard to reconcile. Because mm. I always took the book to be, you know, it's just... It's a kid, um, being a kid and acting in a, in a, in the most primal fashion, and that yeah, you know, that's the book's like yeah, that's 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 a cool thing and and yeah, as I say, it's years since I read the book, but 
this just seems to be totally disconnected from that. And why? How the hell do you market this film? Mm. Who's it, who's who's this mm. film being sold to? Mm. Um, well, I mean, it, it's a film called yeah. Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah, and it's using characters from a much loved children's book. Mm. It's a PG rated film, but it's not for kids. Yeah, and at the same time, is there an adult audience for this film? I don't know. It is. Very strange in that respect. I, I completely agree. I mean, it, absolutely, this is not a film for children. Um, there are only small elements that I would say are things that you would associate with usual children's cinema, which is like when the wild things are jumping around or like throwing each other onto the pile and things like that. And it's a little bit wacky and cartoonish. But none of the story elements are for kids. And there's not even... There's not even an Olaf the Snowman type character, that kind of like zany, uh, goofy character that kids sometimes latch onto because they're fun. None of none of these wild things are particularly like that. The one that it would probably be would be either Carol, but he's all kinds of messed up and probably not appropriate in that respect, or Alexander the Goat. And Alexander the Goat is quite timid and sort of... Um, you know, representing this sort of almost like bashfulness mm. uh, or uncertainty. Well, he's the smallest of the monsters too, isn't he? Yeah, and a lack of self-confidence. Like, there's nobody mm. in there that's just, like, fun. Like, Max apparently doesn't have fun or tells jokes. Like, there's no aspect of that to his Because he has no friends. Well, yeah, and I think that's, again, ties into the fact that you probably couldn't have a character like that in this film because otherwise it would completely undercut the point of the film, which, though it is a slog, the point is, is that it is a slog, it's hard. And that you've got, I guess, this sort of unrelenting ennui which is happening with this with this quite young person. Mm. But I, I come back to what I said before, Stephen. Who, who is this film marketed to? Who, who's who's going to go and see this film? Yeah. No, I agree. I, I, I honestly do not know who this film mm. is for. Whoever greenlighted this, mm. the executive at, what I can't remember, which... Um, Studio uh, Warner, Brothers. Warner Brothers. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they lost their job over this one because it's probably an expensive exercised amount. And um, I can't imagine this did particularly well. In fact, I'm pretty sure it didn't do well at the box office. I'm pretty sure this film sat for quite some time before they released it. Uh, yeah, well, the film was originally... Uh, it was in pre-production... Sorry, it was in production being shot. Uh, in 2006 was when it began. Mm. It was released in 2009. They did have to do some reshoots in 2008 um, because, uh, as we'll find out in the trivia section, uh, the initial screening was viewed as um, not 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 good enough. Not good, basically. Mm. And it's one of those films that I'm glad exists, but I'm not sure why it exists. Yeah, that, that's what I'm I'm struggling to reconcile. Mm. Well, I, I really wanted to watch this a second time and go, you know what? No, you were wrong. You were 10 years younger and you weren't trying to take it on any... Uh, you, know, you, you were trying to find the, the joy of the, the, the childhood book in this film. But no, second time around, having watched this, I'm like, no, look, you, you, you don't have to be that unrelentingly depressing in a film Mm. there's things you i'm sure you could do there were the characters there of 
uh, Ira and Judith. Yeah, the the couple. Yeah, they you know they were lighter characters. Um, I didn't feel they got used to any great degree in this fi- in this film. They were pretty menacing when you come down to it. Yeah. How, how so? Well, I mean, Judith kept was very much you know I will kill you if you step out of line sort of character. Okay, that's pretty menacing. Yeah, that's yeah. a bit menacing. Okay, yeah, yeah that's a point. And but, I, I mean, but she was very loving around Ira. Yeah, mm. and Ira, I think Makes was it better. I, Ira was quite a gentle presence, but was also uh, kowtowing mm. the, the entire time to Judith. Um, just sort of like, yes, darling, that, that kind oh, of thing. That's right. Just rub out any remaining light I find in the film. <laughs> Sorry, Murray. So I get why it is so dark and still technically aimed at kids because, you know, you can have gloves off dark stuff for kids. Kids aren't always going to be their light, happy in Disney. That that sort of coddling you know, isn't necessarily necessary at all times. Like it's kids like being scared. Um, so it's not necessarily a bad thing to have a dark story which deals with these dark themes and shows them that there is a way out and there's a way to start controlling and working through these issues. That's really important for kids that just didn't quite get that. Do you know what I find interesting is the parallels between this film, you know, a film about a, a kid, single parent situation, um, facing um, challenges and... Uh, uh, you know, at at his time of life, um, and E.T. of mm. all things, um, which is yeah, a similar sort of setup, doesn't mm. it? You know, um, young kid struggling with his place in the world type of thing, suddenly finds himself in a fantastical situation, um, and yet, of course, you know, E.T. one of the most loved. Films of all time, I, I, I would, I guess, I'd go out on a limb to say, and and this um, probably not one of the most loved films of all time. Does that come down to uh, directors then? Because obviously Spielberg and Spike Jones are very different directors. Do you think where the world things are directed by Steven Spielberg would have would have been would would have been more likely to, I guess, not not just in terms of having the same person at the helm, but in terms of having maybe a more positive spin on it. Um, oh, undoubtedly, yeah. I, I think, for me, the thing is is more like what Spike Jones could have done in terms of Spike Jones' own sort of filmmaking um, repertoire. It, it, once again, hark back to, to being John Malkovich, mm. which was, you know, as I say, not the lightest of films. No characters there that you, you really... Um, gravitate towards but yet at the same time had this dark undercurrent of humor i don't find the dark undercurrent of humor in this film which Mm. makes it difficult to sit through for 90 minutes Mm. what might be interesting at this point is to hear from someone who was actually involved in the making of the film Mm. would you agree i think that's a great idea probably got some insights that we haven't Stephen. give us some positives well, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the program, I was lucky enough to get to interview uh, Sam Longley, who is the body performance, the suit operator for Ira, one of the titular Wild Things. Um, the full interview itself will be available on the feed in the coming week, but uh, you can have a little snippet now. Uh, this little section that you're going to hear is Sam talking about his first go in the suit of Ira.
introduced to your your big costume piece? Well, they um, that was quite the process. So there was a little clause in our in our contract whereby if we can't operate the suit, they can fire us. Right. Uh, and when we hadn't got the part, so we'd all gone through the audition process, um, but then they had to see whether we could work the suit. Mm. They flew us to LA, uh, and then they took moulds of our face and our body and all the rest, and they started decking us out in the suit. And we basically had a couple of days there to work out whether or not we were going to be able to operate the suit. Mm. The first thing was the, the we land, I go to sleep, I, you know, jet lag kicks in because it's the other side of the world. They wake us up. Driver takes you to the Henson Creature Workshop, right? Which is just mind blowing because mm. you walk in there and there's Muppets all around. There's mm. just just so much joy in that room, mm. and yet it's a workshop. So yeah. people are sweating. There are fans on. There's contact glue. People are cutting into a <laughs> cutting into a, a furry creature, and it's, mm. it was really surreal. And the jet lag was horrible. And they said, "All right, we're just going to sit you in this room. We're going to get a full." cast of your face mm. okay so just lie back close your eyes we're going to stick these straws up your nose so you can still breathe and we're going to cover your face in latex which warms up mm. as you do and it just was oh man it was part part freaky like i think i'm going to die in here mm. and the other part was like the perfect relaxation and coming down out of the plane mm. so then they they do that next day where um we're getting used to everything and they start showing us the models of what we're going to do and they've got pre-built heads. Mm. Uh, and the first iteration was, it was all going to be animatronics. The heads were going to be animatronics because mm. Spike really wanted practical effects wherever right. possible. He mm. didn't want it to be a CGI movie. Um, so I had, a, I had a big harness with a, a Kevlar, like a hook, a... a Something came up my back, mm. over my head, and then hung a mask from that pivot point because right. I was the biggest creature with the biggest head. Mm. And then we had this animatronic face, yeah? Mm. And each eyeball, which were beautifully made, resin, the, each eye was slightly different. You know, they looked very real, weighed about uh, two and a half kilos. Right, so, so this is a big rig. This is a big rig. Mm. And we're putting it on and they're going, how do you feel? And we're all thinking about that little bit of contract which says if you can't operate this, this big opportunity, you've just been flown to LA, to ha you can't mm. have that. So we're like, yeah, I'm fine. I can totally do this. It's okay. Uh, that was Sam Longley there discussing uh, his uh, his work on Where the Wild Things Are. The full interview, which is about 45 minutes long, uh, is available to listen to right now over on our Patreon. If you're a Patreon member, you get exclusive early access to that. Just go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. For those of you just listening on the ordinary feed, it should pop up sometime in the next week so you know if you want to hear it early go over to patreon and become a member there and uh, it's a it's a really interesting interview purely from the perspective of what it's like to get cast in what is you know a, a hollywood film a big one like that but one where you're not going to be seen and um but your performance work is all going to be there and as we just heard it's uh it's hard work uh, as, uh, with uh, straws up the nose and latex and uh, special contract clauses. Mm. W would you guys like some trivia about where the wild things are? Please. Go for it. 
Okay, well, this trivia has all been sourced from IMDb. Uh, the first bit of which is that in July 2006, less than six weeks before the start of shooting, the Henson-built monster suits, because these are Jim Henson creations, uh, arrived at the Melbourne soundstage where Spike Jones and his crew had set up their offices. The actors climbed inside and began moving around, and right away there was a problem because those heads were uh, absurdly heavy. Now, in the interview with Sam, he explains uh, about the fact that basically they worked out reasonably early on um, that the animatronic heads which the Henson Company had built were not going to be practical for what they needed to do in the shoot. Because there's a lot of running around Mm. in this, you know, running through forests and things like that. And the main issue which Sam discusses in that that interview is um, an inability to turn the head independent of the body. Mm -hmm. So in order to turn the head, the whole body had to move with it and they realized okay that's that's going to be an issue um so a lot along with several other issues including you know like weight and safety concerns and things well, like that speaking of that i have a question that he might have answered mm-hmm. um let's see if if you talked about this my issue with that would be the heat like suffering from heat exhaustion in those sorts of suits did they have anything that you know helped with that it was hot uh, but also a lot of their shooting was at night time. Uh, they were shooting often at like four in the morning when it was freezing cold. So they were actually reasonably comfortable. Like it was, essentially, you know, hot, sweaty work. If you've ever been inside like a big mascot suit, it's it's that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The main issue that they had was the fact that with the weight of the heads, um, they figured out that there was actually a limit to how long you could wear the heads for. Um, and Sam says in the interview that um, the longest that they could go wearing the heads before they would get the break um is 45 minutes so you'd have 45 minutes as soon as it hit the 45 minute mark it was like right take the helmets off everyone gets like a 15 minute break while they figure out what they're doing but any longer than that and they would um be at risk of doing themselves serious injury i was gonna say because if each eye is two and a half ki- that's five kilos alone in eyes that mm. you have to support with the weight of your neck well that was in the original animatronic heads i don't know if the eyes in the um non-animatronic heads that they ended up using for the film proper mm. uh, i don't know if they weighed that much but certainly sam sam was very very clear on the fact <laughs> that this was not um this was not an entirely comfortable thing to be wearing for the month or so that he was he was filming as um as ira mm. Um, Spike Jones turned down the chance to make this movie fully animated uh, because he wanted people to feel the wild things and thought it would be more exciting and dangerous if a real kid was running around with these wild things. So there is, I suppose, in the sense that a lot of the um, unrelenting melancholy of this film is quite realistic, having a physical kid running around with physical wild things. That's the word. Thank you, Stephen. Mm. Melancholy. Yeah. I actually think that was quite a good choice. I, I think this film would have potentially been worse were it this sort of m- sort of moody um, melancholy, but animated. Mm. Particularly if it was, you know, fun 2009 style sort of uh, Pixar digital type mm. animation, if that's what they went for. Well, one of the things I did like was that there was a sense of danger when he first encounters the monsters absolutely and throughout as well i kept Mm. going oh my god they're about to like jump too hard and he's gonna die and you get little reminders of their strength the entire time like you know ira's like i like making holes and then you see these trees with just these clear holes that you Mm. know he's just punched through and you're like yeah they could they could and also the fact that there were a bunch of bones which means did have they eaten children they said they ate all their kings yeah but like were were there other kings children like 
Who knows? That's something that didn't really dawn on me until the second time watching of going, hang on a second. Not to mention Douglas's poor arm. Right. Yeah. Some dismemberment. It was his yeah, right arm. A little arm, bit correct. of Titus going on there with the twig branch. A little yeah. bit. Although he seemed he seemed okay with it, to be honest. It was more like, that was my favourite arm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but that kind of, kind of makes it worse almost because he was not quite expecting it, but mm. he was obviously used to it enough and that he just didn't really react to it. So if you're in an environment with that mm. sort of violence, you're like, ah, oh, I guess I lost my arm. Yep, mm. I'm still going to be friends with this person because otherwise I could die. But I think that also ties into Douglas, essentially his character trait was being an enabler, was basically just saying yes and to um, Carol the entire time. Um, I, I kind of feel that was kind of his I, th- I thought he was really the, the one that told the you know, the, the truth, because he's not a king, he's just a kid. Mm. But in doing that, he got his arm ripped off and had to mm. spend the rest of the film with a twig sticking yeah. out of the wound. Well, there we go, see, consequences. Mm. Uh, initially, Warner Brothers were so unhappy with uh, Spike Jones's final movie. Really? Um, yeah. Um, it was apparently much less family-friendly than they imagined. Oh, I t- struggle <laughs> to understand that. Where'd they get that from? They originally wanted to reshoot the whole $75 million project. Wow. Uh, Jones was eventually given some more time and money by the studio in order to make the final product satisfying to both the studio and to him. So this was apparently less family-friendly originally. Wow. Mm. I mean... Wouldn't you love to see that cut? Mm. I feel like that sort of film could have been catered towards an adult audience. The fact that they wanted it to be a bit more child-friendly may have put it into that grey zone, mm. like uh, the Golden Compass, that grey zone of, who's this really for? Yeah. No one knows. Mm. Which but probably made I it harder. See, this is a family film. This mm. isn't a family film. Yeah. And maybe this film would have been better. Would you as take you your seven, eight-year-old to see this film? I, 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 that requires I having so. a seven or eight-year-old. But it would, And it would also... If I, if this, I, this would be as jarring yeah. for me to take my kid to as the time I went to see Mad Max Fury Road and someone had bought their little kids. Oh, God, no. No. Furiosa is a great role model for young women, though. No, don't. Don't do it. Uh, the movie's release generated conflicting views or whether or not it was harmful to expose children to its frightening scenes. Spike Jones indicated that his goal was to, quote, make a movie about childhood, uh, end quote, rather than make a children's movie. Dan Fellman, who was Warner Brothers' head of movie distribution, noted that the film's promotion was not directed towards children, even advising parents to exercise their own discretion. In an interview with Newsweek, Maurice Sendak, who's the author of the original book, uh, stated that parents who deemed the film's content to be too disturbing for their children should just quote go to hell uh that's a question i will not tolerate uh he further noted i saw the most horrendous movies that were unfit for a child's eyes when i was young so what i managed to survive end quote that doesn't really make it better sarah i knew you were going to comment on this look i mean i i kind of like it i I like like the quote Mm. um you know We've all had that experience as a kid where we get into media that we probably shouldn't get into, but that doesn't make it okay. Oh, come on. I grew up watching Hammer Horror. You don't want to know about the stuff that I would see and read when I was a kid, but you know. I mean, there is stuff that is appropriate for children and isn't appropriate for children. I get kind of Morris being like, oh, it's my film. I like what it it looks like, etc., etc. But at the same time, the film does have an issue. Any film which has a child as its main character is probably going to be viewed as being, oh, this is a film for children. 
I do get the argument that in the same way that not all animation is for kids, like obviously, you know, shows like South Park and Family Guy and like, they're not for children, but because they're mm. cartoons, kids are attracted to them. I, I get that argument. But, I think thematically, it's yeah. just thematically, this is too heavy for kids. Yeah. I, I don't think kids are going to sit through this and go, well, that was a great film, Mum and Dad. Thanks for taking me. Glad we didn't go to see Bolt instead. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're going to get um, they're going to get bored is, is kind yeah, of, I think, exactly. the big issue. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it, it's hard to engage with that, particularly when you're younger and, you know, unaware, not having a childhood to look back on. You don't see nine-year-olds reflecting on being four that often, you know, going, oh, back in those days. It, I'm sure it happens occasionally, but, you know, not to the same extent that this film, I think, would want its its audience to do that. As as Spike Jones says, this is a film about childhood, it's, mm. but it isn't for children. Yeah, I, I know why I take a kid to see this. Mm. Uh, all the original songs in the movie were written and performed by Karen O, oh, the oh, lead the singer yeah, yeah, of yes. the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's. Yeah. Uh, she was dating Spike Jones at the time of production. Oh, there we go. Good choice. Yeah. What if he'd been dating anyone else in music? Would, you know, it could have been, would, if he'd been dating, I don't know, Lady Gaga. Celine or, Dion. Yeah, Celine mm. Dion. Mm. Probably I would have had one less thing to like about this film. Mm. Mm. Fair point. But yeah, a very, very nice soundtrack. I do feel as though this soundtrack is responsible for the last 10 years of, um, I guess, hipster music, though. It does feel as though like there was an upsurge in the sale of tambourines and, uh, you know, this sort of come visit the city of wherever type music. It does feel as though maybe this this is responsible for that and that may make it unforgivable. <laughs> yeah, it's just my own thing. Maybe I'm just a hipster. I mean... It's possible. <laughs> uh, Maurice Sendak personally favoured Spike Jones as director, noting he was, quote, young, interesting, and had a spark that none of the others had, end quote. Uh, Jones kept in close consultation with Sendak throughout the process, and the author approved the creature designs from the Jim Henson Creature Workshop. So, at the very least, the author of, of Where the Wild Things Are thought that this was an okay adaptation, or at least it had Which his endorsement. doesn't happen that often. Yeah. yeah. They have one viewer. Yeah. I think this film was made for Maurice Sendak. I think that's mm. that's the audience. Are you Maurice Sendak? Yes, I am. <laughs> Here's your Come. film. Yeah, thank you. Film for you, Mr. Sendak. <laughs> Send it in. Getting the scene where Max runs and barks at the dog proved to be quite difficult, as getting him and the dog to move in rhythm uh, was much more of a challenge than they'd originally thought. Jones had to resort to shooting the two separately, and if you have the DVD, there is uh, one of the bonus features is essentially like a, a montage of how difficult it was to get that shot of the dog running at the end. Well, never work with children or animals, yeah. especially not together. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Sonny Gerasimowicz, uh, who designed The Wild Things for the film, wound up being the suit performer for Alexander the Goat Boy. Oh, okay. He wasn't originally cast, someone else was. Then they weren't in the film, and he ended up actually being the right size for it. Well, maybe they, uh, he, that, whoever that performer was complained about the head and everyone else went ooh not complaining yep, well you i mean i mean sam longley may talk about this in the interview you'll have to just check that out to find out well i imagine that wouldn't have been a very comfortable i mean horns a lot of a lot of weight a lot of weight in that head mm. well they wouldn't cast me that's for sure mm. 
And the final bit of trivia here uh, is something that we've kind of touched on already. It's that each of the wild things uh, has a different personality and representing the different personalities of Max. Uh, those personalities being selfishness, shyness, anger, loneliness, adventurousness, moodiness, and a lack of self-confidence. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's all the things you need to make kids. And, the average kid. Yeah. Mm. It's just seeing them separated in that sense was, I think, quite clever, but could have been maybe better. Hmm. I think I think ultimately it's just the tone of the film. I think that's that's a that's a big issue with it is that the tone is I guess it's just not a tone that audiences are often looking for. That's weird because in if it's if yeah, it's a fantastical film. I watch a lot of fantastical cinema where the tone is unrelentingly miserable. Um but there's something about there was something about this film which just yeah I I don't know. Well, even like big tragedies, like something that Shakespeare does really well or did really well was having comedy in tragedy and tragedy in comedy, because that shows having a moment of lightness makes the darkness so much worse. But if it's just dark, 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 you're sitting there going, okay, um, either I'm going to fall asleep or I'm just going to walk out feeling vaguely ill. Mm. But if you have that juxtaposition, it sort of makes it stand out more. Mm. It's going to be one of those films, I think, that infuriates me, like you know, some of David Lynch's cinema, mm. where it's like, why did you do that? No, you can't do that. You cannot change actors halfway through. That's not right. Um, certain things that I just won't accept. And this this film might be one of them. Could it be part of the issue is that the wild things themselves are very fantastical in appearance, but very human in performance? Could it could it be that that's a discrepancy? Because you know they're kind of wandering around and going, "Hey, uh, let's go over here. All right, uh, what about me?" Like like they're behaving in ways that, as I said before, I I really felt that this these portrayals reminded me of people who I knew. Could it just be that that jarred with the fantastical uh, look of the film in a way that maybe it wasn't intended to? I think for me, Stephen, Where the Wild Things Are was a book that I read as a kid yeah. and enjoyed. It was like it was a rite of passage. You read that, you read Hungry Hungry Caterpillar, and you read the books, you know, the Beezus and Ramona books by Beverly Cleary. That's what you did when you were a kid. And when you've got such a strong connection with something of that nature, uh, which you know for kids it was it was like a, it was like a pop culture hit back then, mm. you know when the wild thing where the wild things are, um, we have something of that nature, and then you hear that there's a movie, and it turns out that the movie is nothing like that much loved thing from your childhood. That's a hard thing to accept. Well, also, speaking as someone who never read the book, I never had that experience as a child. And I think it, what you're both hitting on there is how jarring it is, whether, you know, if you've read it and you go, you know, I want what I read and this isn't it. Or you, I, I was listening to the dialogue the first time we had the scene with the wild things. And I was like, this dialogue seems pretty trite. It feels like a conversation I could have in the street. And that's not what I want from my fantastical cinema. It looks gorgeous. So I expect everything about it to have that sense of mystical energy. And then it's like, oh, hey, bro, I'm just going to walk over here. 
Oh, cool. we, we like the king. He's a king. Oh, kings are cool. Like that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that could be that could be part of it. Um, ultimately, though, we have to score this film. So, mm. Sarah, uh, it was your first time watching Where the Wild Things Are. What score are you going to give it out of 10? Um, I think I'm going to give it three anger management ripping arms out of sockets out of 10. I, I wanted to be more generous than Sarah, to be honest. Um, Not hard. But I, I'm, I'm probably going to go with three punched holes and trees. I, I think I like this film a little bit more than you guys, I think is the sense that I'm getting uh, from this. Um, I certainly don't think that it's a bad film, um, but... No, that's true. I, yeah. I would not, have given it a zero if it was a bad film. Yeah, not judging fair. it as a bad film, it's just... Didn't like much about it. Yeah. and I It's think, not one I'll be dragging out any time again soon. No, and like I, I've watched it two times in, in seven days, and I'm not gearing up for a third watching like it's it's not that sort of film and ultimately i i think i enjoyed it much more the first time watching it i think watching it this this second time i think more of the things that i didn't like about it were more apparent i'm gonna give it five onesies out out, out of ten um so neither pass neither or nor a fail yeah yeah it's it's just right to, to be honest it it is kind of I think there is just as much that I like about this film. See, I'm feeling guilty about my like. three now. I'm, I'm kind not. of wanting to drag that up to a four, but no. I'll, I'll stay. I'll, You'll stay, I'll yeah. Look, look. I, I, I think ultimately this is a film which is technically beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Um, I really love the the look of the film. I think the soundtrack is good. I like the the performances, uh, particularly um, you know the suit performers. Um, you They're know, all great. They, they do do a good job, and I'm not just saying that because we get to interview one of them. Um, but generally, watching them all, I thought they did some fantastic work. But the story didn't grab me particularly. Um, I I do agree with some aspects of of Max being kind of not a great lead um, character to to empathise with, and I do think that ultimately this is. Yeah, it's a bit of a muddled film. Um, who's, it, who's it pitched at? Yeah, mm. again, Maurice Sendak. That's, that's what we <laughs> yeah. figured out. And I do want to reiterate that the kid actor was amazing. Oh, yeah, Max, like, Re- Max the Records. The performers were all great. Yeah, Max Records, the name of the actor, he's great. He, he's done such a, such a good job in that role. Um, and and uh, Sam Longley does talk a little bit about that in the interview as well and um, talks about how how good a performer he was. But the character of Max, um, yeah, I was kind of less in, less invested in in what happened to him, really. Mm. Uh, but that's the that's just the way it goes. So, um, Sarah and Murray, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of the Cinema Catch Up Club. Thank you, Stephen. It was a pleasure, as yeah. always. Thanks for having us. And for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening. I've already told you about the Patreon. I've assumed you've signed up already, so you can hear Sam Longley talking about wearing suits and um, the way the way that vodka's involved in the cleaning process. There's all sorts of interesting facts. Actually, that makes sense. I've done that before. Yeah, it's it's well worth a listen to, mm. to figure out how that works. Just go to patreon.com forward slash podcast to get that and other bonus goodies. We're also available on Facebook if you want to leave us a message or a comment or anything like that. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there and make sure you are subscribed so you get a fresh episode each and every week. We're available on iTunes and SoundCloud and Spotify and other services. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club anywhere 
in those places. But that's all for this week, so until next time... You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.